Boy, this is different. I've been preaching, it's like preaching in the shower this past year. Um, it's, it's, it's pretty different to look out there and see actual people out there. Um, I'm so glad you came today. Thank you so much for coming. I can't tell you how much I've missed you. Uh, and I know we've uh, tried to stay connected in different ways. We've used Zoom a lot this year, but we were not created as incorporeal beings. Uh, and there's something about physical presence uh, that is so precious. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, well, uh, I figured Palm Sunday might be a great Sunday for us to try to get back together. and. Uh, you may have been wondering what's been going on in my mind as we've been thinking about all of this. Um, when this whole past year started, um, I think one of the top priorities in my mind was that I didn't want to do anything that would lead to me losing any of you this year. Uh, and uh, that's being extremely conservative, I think, in terms of the, the, the decisions I've been making. But... Uh, I'm really happy to see so many of you here. Uh, and I feel like we're at a point where many of our more at-risk people have had a chance to be vaccinated and hopefully the risk has come down to a point where we can do this without really putting people at, at undue risk. So thank you so much for being here. Palm Sunday. What is going on with my mic here? Okay. Today is Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday we remember that Jesus, uh, almost 2,000 years ago, that uh, day when he came into Jerusalem riding on the foal of a donkey and was received with acclamations uh, and palm branches and received uh, as the son of David, the Messiah, the king, and was uh, received into Jerusalem that way. And I think it's good for us to remember that Jesus came to be king. We talk a lot about Jesus as our friend. What a friend we have in Jesus, we sing. We talk about Jesus as uh, a brother, which he told us he is to us. Uh, we talk about Jesus as our savior, as our confidant, as our, uh, the one that is closer than a brother. But I think it's important that we not forget that Jesus is our king. That he came to rule in our lives and over all creation. Sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we think of Jesus as just another uh, relationship in our lives that is among many others. Um, but the truth is, Jesus came to save creation from sin and death. And the only way we can enter into that and participate in that is if we surrender to him as king. So I want us to look today at what the psalmist had to say about the coming Messiah centuries before he ever came. We're looking at Psalm number 2, and I've titled the message today, Kiss the Son. Let's read verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot empty things? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. Let us tear apart their fetters and let us cast away from us their ropes. 
This psalm uh, is recognized as a messianic psalm. Now, in terms of the type of psalm it is, it's categorized as uh, a, a song that celebrates the king. And often uh, these psalms will talk about the king of Israel and they're just celebrations of the leadership God has provided for the nation of Israel and thanking God for that and calling on people to uh, appropriately respond to the king. So if we're thinking of it in those terms, it might be thought of as almost propaganda, this idea of a psalm written to call on all the neighboring nations to recognize that God has established his king in Jerusalem and that they should be good vassal nations to Israel as God intended. We might think that, but there, there are some things in this psalm that seem to point beyond what God asked of any of the regular kings that sat on the throne in Israel. Uh, the most significant thing is this promise of giving to this anointed one all of the nations of the whole earth. Never did any of the prophets encourage any of the kings of Israel to go on, an, an, on a, a, a program of conquest to take over the whole earth. Even in the conquest of the land of Canaan, it was limited to that particular territory. There was never a vision or an instruction from God's prophets that Israel was to dominate the whole earth. They were not to be a competing empire to Assyria or Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome. That kind of empire building was never something that the kings of Israel were encouraged to pursue. And yet this psalm talks about God's anointed being given rulership over the whole earth. I think that alone makes it very clear that we're talking here not just about some king in the line of David, but that we're talking here about that special king that we have echoes of throughout the whole Bible, throughout the whole Old Testament. This king that is going to come and finally make right all that has been made wrong because of sin and death. So what does this psalm tell us if we're, if we're understanding it messianically? I think we need to apply it to Jesus. What does this tell us about who Jesus is and what he's here, what he came to do? Well, we begin with this image being painted of the nations raging and the peoples plotting together. And uh, the, the rage and the plotting that they're engaging in is empty. It's not going to succeed. They are not going to succeed in what they're trying to do. The kings of the earth set themselves. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. So there's this idea of the nations of the earth rejecting the rulership of God and God's chosen king. And I think we can think of this in terms of nations, and you might be going through a list in your head of nations on the earth that you think would qualify as those who are uh, vehemently opposed to God and his Christ. But uh, think about it on a smaller scale. Before you get to nations, you have a bunch of individuals. And this whole idea as individuals that we do not want God to be the one ruling over our lives, that happens on an individual basis. Each one of us faces that revolt against our creator. Each one of us is party to this throwing off, casting off the rulership of God in our own lives. You get enough of us together doing that, you end up with people groups, you end up with nations who are doing everything they can to keep God from being king of our lives. 
And this is their, their way of framing it. Let's tear apart their fetters. Let's cast away from us their ropes. Now, these are the instruments of oppression, right? Chains are never a nice symbol. You're not going to find many churches that include chains in their iconography for the church, right? Unless it's a broken chain. Uh, but uh, here's uh, the, the image that the nations paint. And I would say this is what we as individuals do when we rebel against God as king of our lives. We're saying, God, you are the oppressor. Why should I live my life the way you want me to? Why don't I get to live life the way I want to live it? I should be free to do anything I want, and I should be free to think any way I want, and I should be free to do absolutely anything. Well, that's the way we've all been doing it. That's why the world is the way it is today. And what happens when we cast off God's sovereignty and we seek to establish ourselves as the ones in the driver's seat of our lives what ends up happening is that we devolve into a self-centered approach to living that can't help but end up in cruelty and pettiness and self-centered living greed and idolatry and all the horrible things that destroy our lives, that make it impossible for us to maintain healthy relationships with one another, that destroy our marriages and our families and our relationships, and that cause us to fall into hatred and loathing and malice and envy. All these things are born because we have cast off the rulership of God. And here's the great irony, that in our minds, we're the good guys. We're the ones standing for freedom and everything good. And God is the ultimate oppressor, the guy who wants to chain us, who wants to tie us up in ropes. Let's cast them off. Well, the psalmist warns us about this plot. It's empty. We may want to do that. We may want to say, God... I don't want you in control. I want to be in control. We may say that. We may put all of our heads together. We may scheme and plot and put every bit of resources we have behind our efforts to get rid of the rulership of God. But guess what? There is no way we can do that. You know why atoms work the way they do? God keeps them working the way they do. You know the reason you have a heartbeat? God. You know the reason that babies can actually form inside of a mother's womb and the miracle of birth can happen as a regular thing of reality? God makes that happen. You know why we have the breath of life in our lungs? God we could no more cast off the rulership of God than get rid of gravity. He is the basis of our existence. So any plot we try to scheme in our minds to, I'm going to be rid of God as sovereign, is a, a wasted effort. God is king. And there's nothing we can do to change that. Thank God.
I have a question from these verses. The psalmist describes a collective human rejection of God's rule in our lives as nations seek to cast off the bonds of God's lordship. Why do we often think of God's rule as oppressive rather than liberating? Let's read verses 4 and 5. The one who sits in the heavens will scoff. The Lord will jeer at them. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, and in his fury he will terrify them. How does God respond to this when he's sovereign over all creation? He is keeping your heart beating, every single heartbeat of it. And you say, you know what, God, I want to be done with you. I want your chains off of me. I don't want you to tell me anything. And when we as nations gather together and say, God, out of here. What does God do in response to that? Does he say, wow, well, I guess they don't like me. I guess I'll go home. I guess I'll pack up my bags and go somewhere where I'm wanted. God doesn't do that. And you might think that God kind of shrinks back from that kind of rejection, but he doesn't. And he doesn't just pout and get offended. He responds in anger to our defiance of him. Who are we to speak that way to our creator? And he scoffs, he jeers at our folly, at the absurdity of it all. We are fools. And God scoffs at our folly. And he responds to our defiance of him in wrath. We've talked about this when we were working our way through Romans. How God uses wrath. How he pours his wrath out on humankind. Not just as him getting it off his chest. Oh, you don't like me? Well, here. Boom. Let me beat on you for a bit. That's not it at all. But here's the thing, God is going to fix what's wrong with creation. And the only way he can fix what's wrong in your life is if you turn away from your rejection of his lordship. The only way he can fix what's broken in you is if you renounce this revolt against your creator and finally return to your appropriate station as creature. In the hands of his creator. So God's wrath is his response to our rejection of him. Because as he brings fury upon us and terrifies us. And brings forces to bear in our lives that are extremely unpleasant. We have the opportunity to reconsider and think. You know what? Maybe this path I'm on is folly. Maybe this open rejection of God and everything he has to say to me is doing nothing but destroy my life. And God lets us see a foretaste of what's further down the path as he pours his wrath out on us. And the purpose in doing this is redemptive, is to give us the chance to see clearly what's actually going on. I am ruining my life. I am ruining creation. I am doing nothing but sow destruction everywhere I turn. And God's wrath is a call to recognize the folly 
of our path. I have a question from these two verses. God responds to our rejection of his rule over our lives and creation with anger. Why is it good that God does not simply back off when we reject him? What would happen with creation if he did? Let's read verses 6 through 9. I myself have consecrated my king in Zion, my holy mountain. I will recount the decree Yahweh spoke to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your estate and as your possession the ends of the earth. You will break them with a rod of iron. Like a potter's vessel, you will smash them to pieces. In these verses, God basically tells the psalmist, this is the way it is. This is how it's going to be. We can scheme, we can plot, we can get all upset. We can get huffy, we can be dismissive, we can do anything we want toward God, but God is still going to do what he said he's going to do. And this is how reality is going to play out, whether we agree or not. Whether we think it's a great idea or not, this is what is happening. God says, I've set up my king in Zion. That's the poetic way of referring to Jerusalem. And we're talking about Jesus. Now, what happened to Jesus in Jerusalem that led to him being crowned as king? Well, it certainly wasn't that the politicians got got on the same page and decided to crown him king. All they did was crucify him. But in willingly giving up his life as a payment for sin, for the the wrong that had blanketed creation itself, and taking that upon himself, the sin of the world, and burying it with him in the grave, Jesus defeated sin and death and rose victorious. So that upon his resurrection, he tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That was the crowning moment. When he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death, and shortly after that, when he ascended to the right hand of the Father to rule on high, the king has been established in Zion. And this is what Yahweh had to say to his Messiah. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. There's some ambiguity here. God, when he talked to David about his promise of establishing his dynasty, also threw in there elements of an eternal king to come. Uh, One of his descendants would be king in a way far outstripping any other king far outstripping even King David himself. And uh, as God uh, says this, uh, you might think here when he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, that he's just talking about this kind of idea that God treats the descendants of David who are on the throne as, as sons of his. And Jesus in the Gospel of John over and over talks about God as father and encourages us to think of God that way, but it, there's something very different about the Messiah and the way in which uh, he relates to God as Father because he is the only begotten Son of the Father. 
the absolute only one, the unique one who is not only begotten of the Father, but is so eternally Son of the Father. And when Jesus was born in that miraculous birth that no human father had any part in, he was begotten in a way no other human being has ever been begotten. I don't think anybody reading before Christ came anticipated what God was going to do, that the Messiah was going to be God himself coming to us in the flesh. But once it had happened and people could look back and say, oh, that's why Mary conceived of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus is God himself come to us in the flesh. And here's what Yahweh has to say about his anointed one. Ask of me and I will give the nations as your your estate and as your possession the ends of the earth. And here's, it's the world itself and by extension, creation itself is going to be restored under the rulership of God's Messiah. Jesus didn't come just to teach and to give us some good ethical guidelines for living life. He came to reestablish the absolute rule of God over a creation fallen under the power of sin. He came to take over all of creation once more. So today on Palm Sunday, as we talk about Jesus being acclaimed as the promised king, we need to remember that. That he is king of all. And that he will break with a rod of iron those who reject his rulership. He will smash them like a potter's vessel into a million pieces. This is the way it is. God is going to make all things right by his king, Jesus the Messiah. And if we choose to reject him, we become those potter's vessels that have nothing ahead of them except to be smashed to a million pieces. Because this is the way it is. I have a question from these verses. God describes the truth of creation and eternity. He has established his son to rule over the whole earth, creation itself. Any who reject his rule will be shattered. How should this inform our efforts to bear witness to Christ? Let's finish the psalm, verses 10 through 12. Therefore, kings, be wise. Be warned, you who judge the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you should perish along the way when his wrath is scarcely kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We end the psalm with an appeal. Yes, God's king is going to take control of everything. And all that is not right, he will smash into a million pieces. Therefore, we return to the nations at the beginning who are plotting against God's king. Be wise. 
Why destroy yourself? Why insist on remaining that potter's vessel who has to be smashed when God wants to rescue you? When God wants to save you? Serve Yahweh with fear. Come before God, not with demands, not with the expectation that God is going to be your genie in the bottle, at your beck and call. Come before your Creator as the one who was designed by Him and for Him. Serve Yahweh with fear. Why fear? Because we know we have messed up. We know that God has every right to reject us. We know that God has no reason at all to love us. Because we have spit in his face. We have done it our way. And we have not cared. And even when God tries to come and fix what's wrong, we want nothing to do with him. So we approach with fear. We recognize our offense and our lack of a position to demand anything. I love this phrase, and rejoice with trembling. We might think that's contradictory. How can you rejoice with trembling if you're scared to death? What's happy about that? Well, here's the thing. As we approach God with the right attitude, not with arrogance, not with demands, but with a full recognition that we deserve death, And when we come before him in humility and say, God, I know I did wrong. I know I'm at fault. And everything in my life that is wrong is not your fault. It's my fault. It's our fault. We come before him in trembling. We discover that God receives us with arms open wide. That's where the rejoicing comes. But you see, if we don't come before him with that trembling attitude, he's not going to receive us with arms open wide. There's no rejoicing if we come before God with arrogance because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we will come before him with trembling, we will find that God is generous and kind And that all he desires for us is to give everything he has, every single good thing to us. God does not withhold any good thing from those who love him. We find that God is generous, extravagantly so. And we rejoice in the sure knowledge that God has received us eternally. Kiss the son lest he be angry. Now if we, we face the wrath of the Messiah, all that awaits us is to be shattered like a potter's vessel. Crushed into a million pieces because he is not going to tolerate the existence of sin forever. He has set a date on which it will be gone 
And if that is what you have bound yourself to, then you participate in the destruction, in the eternal death. But that's not what the Messiah wants. Notice he doesn't say grovel before the Son. He says kiss the Son. Jesus wants to receive us not just as slaves, as uh, beings to be oppressed. He draws us into his embrace and wants us to come to him in the intimacy of a kiss. The loving embrace of somebody who wants you to be uh, in an intimate relationship with him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We may try to take refuge in ourselves. There's no security in that. But if Jesus is the one we have taken refuge in, there is absolute certainty in that. And we find our blessing in him. I have a final question. God warns us all to turn from sin and death to his Messiah, to Jesus, that he may save us from death. How do we approach Jesus with both rejoicing and trembling? The encouragement of this psalm is clear. Serve with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Some of us hear this message and receive it immediately as good news. We hear it and we recognize immediately, you know what? That's what's been messed up about my life, my whole life long. I've been trying to do this on my own. And I have been rejecting God and his plea and appeal to me. And because of it, I have laid waste with my life. And the moment we hear it, we respond and say, Jesus, take over. I want you to be king. I want to be free from the power of sin. The way it erodes every good thing in my life and taints it and darkens it. I want to be done with that. I want to be done with shame and guilt and all that comes with that. We celebrate the fact that God is willing to step back in and reassume control of our lives. Some of us don't. Some of us respond like Gollum when somebody tries to take the ring, right? I know it's bad. I know it's killing me. But it's my precious. It's everything I want. My prayer this morning is that you give that up. That you be willing to be cleansed of this darkness and surrender fully to the Lord of light. Embrace him as king. Be wise. Kiss the enter into a loving relationship with the one who wants to share eternity and every good thing with you. Let me say a word of prayer. God, thank you so much that you love us. Even though we are the cause of everything that is wrong in the world, 
Even though we broke the good creation you entrusted to our care. God, thank you that you didn't just walk away and say, you know, you made your bed, you might as well sleep in it. But that you stepped back in and did everything necessary, even to the point of enduring a cruel death on a cross to rescue creation from the mistake of sin. Lord, help us, grant us the grace to be wise, to be ready to renounce sin and all that comes with it and to re-embrace our station as your beloved creatures surrendered to your rulership. Jesus, today on Palm Sunday, as we remember your initial being acclaimed as king there in Jerusalem, please may we receive you in the same manner. May we acclaim you as our own king this morning. Be king of our lives. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.